The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 79, The Classical World Summary, Part 4. The year 300. The Roman Empire was at a low point and the Persian lands were being ruled by the Sasanians who were flexing their muscles in Asiatic lands since defeating the Parthians. The Sasanians had also subjugated the Kushan Empire and therefore had a firm grip on the important land routes of the Silk Road. When the Romans and the Sasanians met in battle at Edessa in 260, the Roman Emperor Valerian was defeated and captured and never seen again, which is something unimaginable in Roman history up until this point. Roman emperors were generally coming and going at an alarming rate, but the capture of an emperor was unprecedented. The Roman Emperor called Aurelian attempted to introduce the cult of the unconquered sun to be recognised as a god called Sol Invictus. But this cult did not enjoy mainstream honour for very long and although it continued to exist until the 4th century, it never did prosper. Christianity right now represented a noticeable percentage of the Roman Empire's population, but it was still very much a minority religion. The real problem within the Roman Empire was the secular organisation. The Emperor Diocletian looked to resolve this by splitting the empire into sections that would be governed by emperors ruling their sections of the empire under the overall rule of Emperor Diocletian. One of the major actions was to have a western half and an eastern half, which was generally the Greek-speaking half. This would be the first significant recognition of what would eventually become the split of the empire into two separate empires. Diocletian was known for his new political landscape, but also for his persecution of Christians. By now, Christians possibly made up about 1 in 10 Romans and the traditional Roman pagan traditions were being brought into question as Rome's fortunes were incomparable to the glory days of emperors Trajan and Hadrian. Christianity was even being embraced by some of the higher class individuals and the future emperor Constantine may have been heavily influenced by Christian teachings from a very young age. 
Constantine took control of the northwest of the Roman Empire after the death of his father, who himself had been an emperor during the reign of Diocletian. This was a very important point in the history of Christianity because Constantine would take an opposing approach to religious tolerance within the Roman Empire, actively seeking an end to Christian persecution and outlawing it completely. It is speculated that when Constantine looked to take control of Rome from a rival empire called Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, that Constantine saw a vision from God that aided him to becoming victorious at the battle. It was after Constantine's victory that his fellow emperor, Licinius, agreed that the persecution of Christians should be outlawed. But there was still tension actually within the Christian church itself with differing doctrines coexisting. In most religions, when there was a need to standardise the mainstream doctrine and confirm approved practices, then a council would be gathered. And the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 was the site of one of the first liturgies that would bring Christianity back into some sort of order. Schisms would still exist, but at least the Nicene Creed would definitely distance itself from these schisms so that there were no misconceptions. The whole nature of the Roman Empire was undergoing a radical change and modernisation in a bid to get away from their old and antiquated ways and try to head in a new direction where the government of the empire was less centralised and therefore less susceptible to rebellions which were undermining the national strength of the empire. With Rome as a central city having less importance and influence, Constantine would establish a new capital city at the Thracian city of Byzantium, which would be renamed Constantinople in his honour. It is stated that during this time, Emperor Constantine sent his mother, a practising Christian called Helena, to look for Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem. A couple of centuries before, the Romans had expelled the Jews from Jerusalem and started building a Roman city on the ruins. In the process, it is suggested that Jesus' tomb was filled in and hidden from view, effectively forgotten about. And now Constantine thought that the time was right to recover the site's identity. Helena discovered the tomb and remnants of the cross on which Jesus was crucified, and the construction of a sacred church was ordered at the site which is known to us as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Evidence also exists from this time that Christians had identified the date of December the 25th as significant in their calendar, as the day that Jesus Christ was born. It may be simply a coincidence that this day had already been significant in the Roman calendar as the day when Emperor Aurelian dedicated a temple to Sol Invictus during the previous century. But some believe that this fact is significant in the eventual recognition of this date becoming Christmas Day and for many countries of the modern world today.
Another religion that finds links to other world religions such as Christianity emerged during this period and was already spreading out and it continued to exist for many centuries with some isolated cases of observance right up until the modern day. It is called Manichaeism. The creation is attributed to a man called Mani who was born in the Parthian Empire and oversaw the transition of power to the Sasanian Empire. He claimed himself to be a prophet and recognised Zoroaster as a prophet, which shouldn't be so surprising because Zoroastrianism was the dominant religion of Persian lands during this period. Interestingly, Mani would also recognise Jesus and the Buddha as prophets, linking world religions together. The 13th century is regarded as a time when Manichaeism disappeared into obscurity, but it is believed to have spread far and wide, initially from the Roman Empire in the west to China in the east. China was still fragmented during this period and would be for some time to come. There was a brief period of reunification under the Western Jin dynasty, but it was an unstable reunification and ethnic Xiongnu, who had been living in the lands of the north, fought to maintain an independence from the more Sinaized governors of Chinese lands. So it would not be long before China would look more like a patchwork of states again, in particular in the north. Interestingly, we see this period as one of the earliest known times when the magnetic compass was in use in China. We cannot be completely sure about who invented the compass, but the nature of magnetic minerals are likely to have been observed, if not utilised, wherever they were discovered. Certainly the Chinese were utilising them for the purpose of determining direction by the 4th century. In neighbouring Japan, there is evidence that Confucianism had migrated to their lands by this time from China via Korea. There is strong evidence that riding stirrups have been perfected for use in China by this time, which was an evolution of the mounting stirrup, which would enable someone to climb onto a horse only. The riding stirrups would allow the horseman more leverage to be able to ride at speed less dangerously and redistribute their weight in order to use weapons more effectively. In other areas of the world we can see the establishment of a new powerful empire when Chandragupta I established the Gupta Empire in India. In the Americas, more power was emerging in the Mayan rainforests with the rise of individual city-states, although they would still each not compare to the mightiest city in Mesoamerica, Teotihuacan. The Zapotec city of Monte Alban was still thriving in the south and settlements such as El Tajin were starting to represent the emerging classic Veracruz culture of the coastal lands east of Teotihuacan. We can observe further expansion and colonisation by human travellers in the eastern islands of Polynesia too. The year 400 from the lands of the Eurasian steppe, a migration of peoples would set off a chain reaction of events that would affect all of the lands of the Roman Empire. These peoples are referred to 
as the Huns. And their specific identity in the context of world politics and history is hazy. In fact, many of the migrations of steppe peoples are shrouded in mystery as historians debate about their relationships with one another. We can feel very confident about the identity of the Xiongnu, who were the people of the eastern steppe recognised in Chinese literature from the latter half of the first millennium BCE. We can also feel very confident about the identity of the Huns, whose most famous leader was Attila, and whose stories were recorded by Roman scribes following the Hunnic invasion of Europe during the 4th and 5th centuries. What we cannot nail down is whether there was a close relationship between the Huns and the Xiongnu, as some historians have speculated that a branch of the Xiongnu migrated west into Scythian territory and that they were the ancestors of the Huns. If there is any truth in this, then this can lead to further speculation about a relationship with another group of peoples called the Kidarites. The Kidarites, also called the Kidara Huns, pushed down from the Kazakh steppe into the former lands of the Kushan Empire and the neighbouring borders of the Sasanian Empire during this same period. The Kidarites were one of a number of steppe cultures recognised in Indian texts as a collective culture called the Huna, which is why they can be referred to as Kidara Huns. Before the Hunnic invasions of Europe took place and despite all of the reforms of the Roman Empire by Diocletian and Constantine the Great, the Roman Empire was still continuing to struggle to recognise its own identity and this was not helped by the growing strength of the empire's Germanic neighbours. Christianity was continuing to become stronger in influence but not all emperors embraced Christianity after the lifetime of Constantine the Great. Emperor Julian the Apostate was notable for his considerable attempt to restore pagan religion within the empire, but this was not successful and it would be before the end of the 4th century that Christianity would be officially instated as the state religion of the Roman Empire, which is a remarkable thing considering the religious history of the Roman Empire and the humble and radical beginnings of the Christian church. It would be very early in the 5th century that the first Latin version of the Bible would be completed. The transition was not completely smooth though, especially in Egypt where Christianity had always had a strong identity, but traditional pagan worship was also still considerable. When Christians stumbled across some pagan artefacts at the remains of the Great Library in Alexandria, pagan outrage led to conflict between Christians and pagans that led to the destruction of what little remained of the library. Despite the incredible change of religious identities within Europe during this period, it would still be the politics of the continent that would steal the headlines. As mentioned before, the Hunnic invasion of Europe set off a chain reaction of events that would change the map of Europe forever, and to a large degree set up the circumstances by which some of the modern countries of Europe would begin to emerge. When the Huns invaded Europe, 
The first peoples that they would encounter were Gothic peoples, who had expanded their influence from their origins as a group of Germanic tribes in northern Europe, all the way down to the northern banks of the Black Sea. The Huns would push the Goths back towards the northern border of the Roman Empire in Thracian lands, and the Goths would end up in military conflict with the Romans as a consequence, even defeating Emperor Valens's army at Adrianople. This Roman defeat would highlight the vulnerability of the once great Roman Empire, and now the societies of Europe would fear the Romans less, which was disastrous for the Roman Empire in the coming decades. Emperor Theodosius was the emperor who cemented Christianity as the empire's official religion, and his death in 395 would lead to his sons taking control of the eastern and western halves of the empire. From this point on, both halves of the empire would begin to drift apart politically, and each would maintain its own interests first, before the interests of the entire empire. This represents the split of the Roman Empire into two separate entities, into the Western Roman Empire, which would fall within a hundred years, and the Eastern Roman Empire, which would evolve to become the Byzantine Empire. Another group of Germanic tribes called the Vandals would also move west into Roman territory and begin a series of raids of the lands of Gaul and Hispania. And this would also contribute to the Roman abandonment of Britannia, which would leave Britannia to the mercy of seafaring Germanic peoples such as the Angles, Saxons and Jutes, who would be able to land on Britannia with less resistance. The iconic city of Rome was no longer as important politically, but certainly it was in terms of its history. So it would have been quite a shock when the Visigoths, under the leadership of Alaric, breached the city walls of Rome after successfully besieging it, a full 800 years after the Celts sacked the city in 390 BCE. The Western Romans would need to seek political alliances and grant concessions in order to avoid being completely overrun by many different foreign tribes eyeing up the wealth within the empire. Granting lands to the Visigoths would enable the Western Romans to defy the Vandals, who would migrate to North Africa from Hispania and establish a Vandal kingdom in Roman territory there. The Western Romans were losing control of great swathes of their vast lands. Before the Vandals had taken the lands of North Africa, a very influential man had lived there, as a Western Roman citizen who became the bishop of the city of Hippo Regius, an important Roman city in the lands of the modern country of Algeria. He would be known as Augustine of Hippo, and his philosophical works on the subject of Christianity would become highly influential on the Roman Catholic Church in centuries to come. He would eventually be canonised and referred to as Saint Augustine, but not to be confused with the Saint Augustine who would become the first Archbishop of Canterbury, who lived two centuries later. Hippo Regis would fall to the Vandals, who would extend their territory to the Roman city of Carthage, 
before taking control of Sicily, cutting the Western Romans off from any African territories. The spread of Christianity was considerable. The Aksumite kingdom of the Upper Nile was becoming ever more powerful. Its king, Izana, embraced Christianity, paving the way for the modern Ethiopian Orthodox Christian Church. Izana would also expand his kingdom downriver to take control of the Kushite lands around the city of Meroe, bringing the Aksumites into contact with the Egyptians, who were under the authority of the Eastern Roman Empire. Christianity was known to the people of Britannia during this period, despite there being considerable conversions of the later Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in later centuries. It was while Britannia was still under Roman rule that we believe a man called Patrick lived, who would travel westwards from the island of Great Britain to the island of Ireland and bring Christianity to the people there. He is referred to now as Saint Patrick, despite never being formally canonised, and he is regarded as the patron saint of Ireland and the founder of the Celtic Christian Church, converting the Irish from their Celtic pagan traditions. Buddhism was enjoying similar expansion success in Asia and we can see a period of the emergence of temples, paintings and sculptures that date to these middle centuries of the first millennium. This period was the period of the Gupta Empire in India, however, in which Hinduism dominated. The long reign of Kumaragupta I marked a period of great literary advances and creations of the Gupta Empire. Particularly, there were many great religious works relating to Vedic traditions and Hinduism written in the Sanskrit language during the Gupta Empire period. There were also great works of poetry and drama created too, which demonstrates a healthy academia in Gupta India during this period. Elsewhere in the world, we can observe the continuation of a fragmented China, with the South following a politically independent path to the North, which in particular was experiencing periods of amalgamation and fragmentation, unlike the lands of the South. Human population continued to expand across the Pacific Islands, including Hawaii, which represents one of the first post-Neolithic migrations to the country of the United States, although admittedly a very remote and detached part of it. The Year 500 so, we reach the final leg of our journey from the beginnings of the classical world, since the fall of the Assyrian Empire and the emergence of the classical cultures of Europe, such as the Greeks and the Romans. And by the latter half of the 5th century, what was left of the Western Roman Empire was a very different animal to the glory days of classical Rome. So we can suggest that the classical age had now been left behind. But the world transitioned after the emergence of Silk Road trade, into one of intense trade and warfare like never before, and so started the character of the medieval world. Central Europe was now dominated by the Huns, who had displaced many Germanic tribes and limited the opportunities for the Romans by compromising their political relationships. 
it would fall into the hands of the experienced Roman military general called Etius to do battle with the most formidable of all Hunnic leaders called Attila. And they met at the Battle of the Catalaunian Plains in the year 451. Many of the Germanic tribes in Europe picked their side during this battle and the result meant that Attila's ambitions in Gaul were prevented. When Attila died a couple of years after, the power and the influence of the Huns gradually waned until their presence became insignificant, thereby closing a fascinating chapter in European history. From the Roman perspective, the damage to the Western Empire had been done. Warfare is exhausting, and with Western Rome in a precarious position thanks to the constant defence of its territory from Germans, that a war with the Huns was extremely unwelcome. Now Western Rome was just another political entity on the map of Europe, no more powerful than any other. By 476, the last official emperor of Western Rome, Romulus Augustus, was deposed and the rule of the Italian peninsula, which was all that was left of Western Rome, fell into foreign hands before the Ostrogoths stepped in and became the rulers of Italy by the end of the 5th century. One of the last remnants of Western Roman territory outside of the Italian peninsula was in northern France, but this very quickly fell to a Germanic peoples called the Franks. The Franks were made up of various tribes, but it was not until the rule of Clovis that the Franks were all united under one rule. Previously, some had supported Western Rome as residents within their territory. Now, they all had one land. This would be the beginnings of the Frankish Empire, which evolved and gave its name to the modern country of France. Significantly, Clovis embraced Christianity and was baptised as a Roman Catholic in Rennes Cathedral and the Frankish kingdom became a Christian realm. In the Ostrogothic kingdom of Italy, Roman culture did continue despite the rule of the new lands now being foreign. So, for example, a Roman senate still existed as most of the population of the Italian peninsula would identify as Roman citizens. Under the rule of Theodoric the Great, the Ostrogothic kingdom was at its greatest extent, in control of the Italian peninsula and a large portion of land stretching eastwards to Pannonia. Theodoric actually imprisoned one of his well-learned Roman statesmen, a man called Boetius, who was suspected of plotting to overthrow him. While imprisoned, Boetius completed philosophical works that are considered to be among the last great Roman literary works, such as the Consolation of Philosophy, echoing back to the works of the great Athenian philosopher Plato and considerably influential over Western medieval society. Benedict of Nursia was a Christian abbot who also wrote highly influential works during a similar period in Italy that would advise monks living in the communities of abbots on their ways of life. 
The works have come to be known as the Rule of St Benedict and would have likely been a guidance at the many monastic communities created by Benedict during his lifetime in 6th century Italy. During Benedict's lifetime within the Ostrogothic Kingdom, the Ostrogoths came under pressure from the Eastern Roman Empire, which had come under the rule of a long-serving emperor called Justinian. Justinian's early rule was turbulent, with mob violence against Justinian threatening the capital city of Constantinople in 532. The Nika riots are described as some of the most violent scenes that the city of Constantinople ever witnessed, with tens of thousands of people killed and much of the city burned to the ground. Justinian overcame the rebels within and then turned his attention outwards in order to strengthen his empire. Firstly, he would target the Vandals in North Africa and quickly extend his African influence from Egypt westwards into the lands of the Vandals centred on Carthage. The importance of Carthage is that it represents the part of North Africa that is the narrowest waterway to Europe, and particularly Sicily. So Justinian would plan an invasion of Ostrogothic Italy in order to bring traditional Roman lands back under the rule of a Roman emperor but this time it would be the Eastern Roman Empire. It took Justinian a couple of decades to complete the conquest of Italy and ending Ostrogothic rule. Justinian's reign over the Eastern Roman Empire was considerable. After overcoming internal dissent, as described earlier, he published a legal code called Corpus Juris Civilis, that was a version of Roman law. He also built an impressive building on the site of a church in Constantinople, which is still standing to this day. It is the Hagia Sophia and remains one of the most iconic and important buildings in the world today. Justinian would also have to navigate his empire through a very tense period of war and diplomacy with the Sasanian Empire to its east under the rule of its long-serving emperor, Khosrow I. The great classical period city of Antioch was within Justinian's territory and was rocked by an earthquake. So Justinian attempted to rebuild the city before Khosrow sacked it and deported a large number of its population to Mesopotamia. Before Justinian's reign, raw silk had been imported into the Roman Empire from China, which started something called Byzantine silk production. But this was affected during the reign of Justinian. China was still fragmented, and despite a period of unity in northern China under the Northern Way, there was fragmentation once again. With the Sasanians in firm control of the direct silk road between the Roman territory and China, Justinian would look to exploit alternative longer routes via the Aksumites of East Africa by sea and by the steppe cultures in the north. However, the best move was when Justinian was able to acquire silkworm eggs from China, thanks to the approaches of two monks 
who had observed silk production in China and brought him the eggs to gain favour. The Eastern Roman Empire was now able to produce highly sought after silk without the need to trade with the Chinese around the difficult Sasanian Empire. Trading through the steppe may have even brought devastation to Europe in the form of the highly contagious and deadly bubonic plague which initially spread throughout Egypt before going on to affect a much wider area. The vector for the plague is a parasite of rodents which alone aids the locomotion of the disease and it caused waves of plague that would devastate human populations for many generations. It would devastate the population of the Eastern Roman Empire and particularly the population of Constantinople and would also transmit to the Sasanian Empire causing devastation there also. It was truly a pandemic and so much larger in scale than the Antonine Plague which ended the period of the Roman Empire's Golden Age during the 2nd century. It could be that as many as 50 million people succumbed to the initial wave of plague, which is often referred to as the Justinian Plague. So there is an argument to state that Justinian was one of the greatest leaders when you consider all that he achieved against all that he had to deal with. After Justinian's lifetime, the Eastern Romans struggled to maintain their Italian lands due to the incursions of the Lombards into northern Italy. At this time, the papacy in Rome existed only with the blessing of the rulers of the land. The Byzantines of the Eastern Roman Empire would insist upon approving each pope. With the approach of the Lombards into Italian territory, it could not be certain how it would affect the papacy if they took Rome from the Byzantines. When Pope Pelagius II died from plague in 590, a humble monk who served as his secretary was nominated to succeed him in an unprecedented move. His name was Gregory and his tenure was surprisingly good. Gregory would do little to endear himself to the Byzantines due to the fact that he believed that they cared very little for Rome. So Gregory concentrated his efforts on using his wealth on feeding the poor and converting peoples, including the Lombards, to Catholicism. He would then extend Roman Catholicism to the Visigoths and the Franks as well as sending a mission to the Kingdom of Kent in Great Britain, led by a man called Augustine. Augustine converted the King of Kent to Catholicism and established an archdiocese at the Kent capital city of Canterbury. Augustine was the first Archbishop of Canterbury, a position which still exists to this day as the primary Christian bishop of all of England. A simultaneous Christian mission to Great Britain was also taking place, but this time it was coming from Ireland and the descendants 
of the Celtic Christian traditions created by St Patrick. The people of Great Britain were predominantly pagan since the departure of the Romans and the arrival of Germanic peoples. The Irish mission was established in the far north of Great Britain, far away from Kent in the southeast. The people of the north of Great Britain were still indigenous and had not yet encountered Germanic settlers in any great number. The Irish abbot called Columba had established the earliest known significant Christian abbey on modern Scottish soil on the island of Iona. In the Far East, Buddhism was now spreading from Korea into Japan after beginning its journey in northern India and following the Silk Road route through the Kushan Empire a few centuries earlier into China before spreading to Korea. China was heading towards reunification when the Sui took control of northern China and then extended their influence to the south. The Gupta Empire was slowly debilitated by further waves of migrations from the north this time it would be the Alcon Huns who would follow the path previously taken by the Kidara Huns. There were still advances in academia in India during this period though. Polymaths such as Aryabhata and Varahamihara advanced understanding in fields such as mathematics and astronomy during the 6th century despite all of the political upheaval going on at this time. In the Americas, this was a time of the classic Maya civilization who prospered in and around the modern country of Guatemala. We can now see the classical world was now in the past and that a new medieval world path was dawning. When the Sasanians attacked the very important Byzantine cities of Antioch and Jerusalem, an unknown quantity was waiting in the wings to pick apart the weakened Sasanians who had thrown their wealth into succeeding against their traditional Roman rivals, now in Constantinople. This was the rise of the first Islamic caliphates that would dominate the lands in and around the Middle East after defeating the Sasanian Persians. China would now begin a new phase of unifying dynasties after centuries of fragmentation. The first major one being the Tang Dynasty. Turkic peoples would come to dominate the grasslands of the steppes, previously the mysterious lands of a variety of Hunnic nomads. Different ethnicities would begin to establish their own rule of the post-Roman lands of Europe, but also there were peoples carving out their own territories in the Indian subcontinent, the Indo-Chinese peninsula in Southeast Asia, and the lands of Peru and Mesoamerica. All of these stories and more will be revealed when we begin Volume 4. Well, there we go. 79 episodes and we made it. We did it. We got all the way to the end of the classical world period and thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and uh, thank you so much and also if you made it from episode one all the way through to episode 79 
you've done really well and I dare say you've enhanced your understanding of this period in history and um, wasn't it a great journey all around the world and through the ages. So let's read out some listener messages. Let's uh, do what we like to do each week um, and uh, acknowledge those people who've been kind enough to take the time to write in. Uh, first one, uh, hi Chris, my name is Brandy. Before a long drive a few weeks ago, I looked at podcasts on Spotify to see if I could learn about the history of the world, particularly in terms of evolution and migration. I stumbled across your podcast and have been listening to it ever since. I have been listening to almost an episode a day while I walk my dog. I just finished episode 17. I have found it very accessible except for all the various names of species and places etc. And I really like your accent and how you explain it all. Thank you so much for taking your passion and putting it out there for myself and others to learn. I cannot wait to keep listening. Also, you are basically an expert and I hope you own all your knowledge in later episodes. I think I think you're sort of referring to my, my sort of humble comments about me being not being an expert. I suppose I suppose expert is the wrong word. I, I should say like a non-academic or uh, or not a first-hand historian. So so I'm not the one going out there gathering all the knowledge. I'm I'm really just a, a conveyor of knowledge. Let's say so other people's work. Uh, enable me to be able to present you with the podcast episodes that I do and uh, and I'm ever so thank- uh, thankful to them all the experts for their for their work and I certainly don't want to sort of plagiarize anything that they've done um it's quite nice for me to be able to summarize um all of our discoveries about history and hopefully uh, excite people's interests and uh, in turn reward those um, people who are working hard in in the fields um, by gaining more interest, more public interest uh, by uh, publishing this podcast. But thank you so much, Brandy, for for writing in. Very, very kind message. Another very interesting message from Clay West Clay, who's put, Hey man, just discovered your podcast and I'd like to congratulate you on your excellent work. I'm still working on the prehistory episodes. The reason I've messaged you, I live in Kentucky on the Lower Cumberland River near the confluence of the Ohio, Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers in the United States. I've found legally hundreds and hundreds of broken and complete stone tools and artefacts from between the late Paleo and Woodland periods. At least three distinct cultures occupied the same riverbanks and fields. Not only is this the confluence of three large rivers which end up making the Mississippi River, but during the Ice Age, this was the edge of the glacial wall. North from my location was an ice sheet. South from my location was territory that the glaciers had retreated from. I've even found Clovis materials. If you'd like to see some of these artefacts or even receive one in the mail or discuss this period of history, please contact me. Um, what a great message, Clay! Fantastic to um, see that you've you've found so many broken and complete stone tools and artifacts, and uh, and uh, I hope you treasure them, and and I hope um, that you are able to maybe 
share some images with with all of us you know so rather i think I, I wouldn't just like to see them myself i'd love to see them shared with the community and uh mate i don't know maybe even you can sell some of your stone tools to to people who, who would like to receive one in the mail i don't know i don't know if there's a little business that can be made out of that but good luck to you and uh, and thank you so much. A really fascinating, uh, fascinating story, and and very relevant to the stories of uh, the uh, the prehistoric Americas that we spoke about in Volume One with the with the glaciers and and the and the Clovis stone tools and, and artifacts that are quite uh, fascinating, just due to the fact that they're. They're similar similar to stone tools found elsewhere in the world, so so it's good to sort of speculate about whether there is any kind of relationship between uh, the stone tools of the Americas and the stone tools of Eurasia. Um, so thank you so much, Clay. Great message. We've got a message from Courtney, who's put, "What is the Illuminati tab about? I thought it was going to be a history of it." But it just shows names of nursery members and Masonic grades. Does this podcast take part in and promote Illuminati? Um, well, I suppose I've never really discussed why we have a, a History of the World podcast Illuminati. We certainly know what it is. It's the it's the list of people who have made uh, significant contributions to. The History of the World podcast, whether that be through financial or, or other work. Um, and uh, there's a great number of names on it now, people who over over the last three years have, have uh, found uh, pleasure in, in assisting the History of the World podcast to grow. Um, the use of the word Illuminati, well, I think when you say Illuminati um, in the modern world, it, it invokes thoughts of... Um, yeah, like a, a an underground elite who are looking to maybe control world politics. Um, obviously, really, the Illuminati originated as as more of a um, an Enlightenment period um, group who who's sort of opposed uh, politics, uh, sort of propaganda politics and, and religion. Um, and believe that it, it that they were the things that were actually trying to control the minds of people, and the Illuminati was actually against it. So it's quite ironic that people actually label the Illuminati now as the ones who are trying to be the controllers, because uh, because really in the in the beginning it, it it was sort of quite the opposite. That was what they were were uh, sort of fighting against. But the Illuminati since then has become something that is quite a a mysterious thing really it's sort of an underworldy sort of mysterious thing no one actually knows who belongs to it really and um speculation as to wealthy uh families and and that kind of thing are, are, are part of it and they're actually really the ones who are controlling the world and the politics of the world um look the history of the world podcast has got nothing to do with that at all illuminati really is something that i use to it's more related to the that what it really literally means illuminati enlightened people enlightened people that's it. that's what we all are we listen to the history and we're all enlightened so we have our own 
style of Illuminati, and uh, and that's really what it refers to. So uh, that's why we call it the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And um, I'm proud to say that this week we have another member to the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, 256 Alan Jones Yona. He's now a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Um, thank you so much, Alan. What Alan did is he signed up to make a pledge to keep the podcast going. And if you'd like to make any kind of financial contribution, go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link, and sign up and make your own contribution to the upkeep of the podcast. It really does help. And um, I, I've, you know, I've bought some new equipment, and hopefully, the quality of the podcast it sounds a bit better and um, than it did maybe three years ago. And that's thanks to you guys who have um, signed up, made monthly contributions, and are now uh, etched in the history of the world podcast Illuminati list. Let's read out a couple of reviews. Um, firstly, Frustrated 701005 from the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. I'm quite sure uh, that we've not had um, a review from Trinidad and Tobago, so very exciting. A beautiful work. This is one of my favourite podcasts. I listen from the village of Gasparillo. Um, on the island of Trinidad in the West Indies. As I have heard from many of your listeners, I was first attracted by your Bronze Age Collapse episode. The programme is very easy to follow. I admire the fine efforts you have made. May you complete your goals and find joy and peace in your task. Also, I love hearing your accent and I wish we could hear more of the variety of English accents and dialects. Looking forward to hearing... Uh, your West Indian programs when you get to us. Um, well, like, do you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the West Indian episodes. I think the Caribbean is 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 very interesting, somewhat, um, you know, some very tragic stories, of course, linked to West Indian islands. But in terms of um, the culture that we get from the West Indies now, it's it's wonderful, wonderful, unique, and and there's you know from it you sort of get a very happy vibe from the West Indies, despite its very sad history. Um, and um, I, I really do enjoy listening to West Indian English dialects and even turns of phrases. I think I think the West Indians. And, and even the Indians as well, while we're on the subject of Indian, um, really do speak English very eloquently and it's quite interesting to listen to it. I wish that I could uh, speak with as much eloquence, but thank you, uh, Frustrated701005. I'm sure you weren't christened uh, by that name, but, um, but thank you ever so much for writing in anyway. Thank you. Well, that's it for another week. And that's it for another volume. That's it. It's finished now. Um, volume three, all done and finished. Amazing. So we're going to sign off now and that's it for volume three. I, I don't know when the start of volume four will be yet. Hopefully, you know, in not too long. Hopefully, um, uh, you know, a couple, two or three months we'll, we'll be able to launch volume four. There's a bit of work to be done before we can launch it. 
Um, I'll keep in touch with you each week and give you a brief update with uh, with all sorts of things and maybe there'll be one or two subjects that I can speak uh, somewhat um, off the record, somewhat, um, you know, off the cuff on uh, maybe things that are related to volume three itself. And then, of course, uh, there might be one or two special episodes uh, that are written uh, especially for people who have made significant contributions to the podcast and will be rewarded with their own special episodes on the subjects of their choice. So there is stuff to look forward to. We will, of course, um, give you probably a bit more information as to what will be in Volume 4, but but we may do that may, uh, perhaps next week. So uh, we will be back next week making a broadcast, but um, that's it now for the Volume 3 episodes all of them are done and um now we now have got a break until volume four so thank you so much for everyone that's uh, been involved and until we meet again whenever that will be for volume four obviously make sure that you be good come to the history of the world podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati? Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.